This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. For this WexCast, we're sharing a recent talk by author David Shields. The best-selling writer reads from his 2018 book, No One Hates Trump More Than Trump, An Intervention, and shares a preview of his latest book, The Trouble with Men, Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power, which is coming out this week. Let's listen. I'm Jim Fallon. For those of you who don't know, I'm the current director of Project Narrative, um, which is an interdisciplinary program in the Division of Arts and Humanities housed in the English Department and the sponsor of uh, David's talk, chief sponsor, along with the Wexner Center. So David Shields is the Millman Distinguished Writer in Residence at the University of Washington. He's a prolific polymath, a provocative thinker, and an innovative artist. He's earned numerous honors and awards, including fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. Reality Hunger, his brilliant meditation on fiction, nonfiction, the idea of originality, and the way we think now, to name just some of the things he takes up. This book was named one of the best books of 2010 by more than 30 publications. Over the course of his career, David has published more than 20 books, including Black Planet, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, How Literature Saved My Life, I Think You're Totally Wrong, one of my favorite titles, <laughs> and Other People Takes and Mistakes. David Shields began his career as a novelist and he has, over the course of his career, come to experiment with what he calls wayward nonfiction. In other words, neither the standard memoir nor literary essay, but pieces that bend these conventional genres of nonfiction. That genre bending involves not only blurring or playing with the lines between fiction and nonfiction, but also with those between and among voices. I think it's too bad that Mikhail Bakhtin, one of our greatest theorists of language and voice, never had a chance to engage with the work of David Shields, one of our greatest contemporary innovators of language and voice. Reality Hunger is, among other things, an amazing mashup of different voices that sometimes blend seamlessly together, sometimes spin away from each other, and have just about every other possible interrelation in between. And to give just one more illustration of this aspect, this is just one aspect of David's work, he has a remarkable piece in the collection Other People called Words Can't Begin to Describe How I'm Feeling. This piece strings together eight pages of sports cliches. Although there's not a sense in the whole essay that's been uttered countless times by athletes, sports writers, and television commentators. Next man up, right? He's on fire, et cetera, et cetera. You, if you were to pay any attention to sports discourse, you can hear them in your head. So despite there's no sentence that hasn't been uttered countless times by others, David's orchestration of these cliches is so masterful that the piece becomes simultaneously hilarious and poignant and amazingly original. We're fortunate today to be able to hear this brilliant orchestrator of voices read to us in his own voice, or perhaps I should say, in his unique layering of voices. Please join me in welcoming David Shields. 
Thank you, Jim. Does my voice carry fine back there? Not quite the projector that Jim is, but I'll try. Anyway, it's really lovely to be here, and I've been a long fan of the Wexner Center and, and Project Narrative, and I thought today I'd read from a couple of books. One is called um, Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump, An Intervention. And this book was published in October. And uh, kind of a series of meditations. It's divided up into six chapters. There's a brief, maybe I'll read this brief summary of it, which pretended to be flap copy from the publisher, but it was actually something that I wrote, of course. My own Trumpian fake news, I suppose. It's a psychological investigation of Trump, a philosophical meditation on the relationship between language and power, a satirical compilation of the collected wit and wisdom of Donald Trump, and a dissection of the politesse that gave rise to and sustains Trump. The book is organized into six chapters and 60 subsections and gets increasingly harrowing in its focus, moving from childhood to sex, to media, to virtue signaling, to chaos theory, to apocalypse always. The book's central thesis is that we have met the enemy and he is us. So anyway, that's a little flap copy for you, but... Um, I'm weirdly, scarily good at flap copy, I think. So, um, Anyway, I'm going to read maybe 20 or 30 very brief passages, as Jim suggested very generously. And I'm a huge Bakhtin fan. I mean, nothing changed my writing life more than Bakhtin's emphasis on polyphony. And so that's really terribly important to me because I had been terribly interested in a kind of single voice and Bakhtin helped me understand how much I was interested in a multiplicity of voices and um, this book is full of me immersing myself in a year of American media a friend challenged me to write a book on Trump and this was my attempt on the Michael Medved Show, right-wing talk radio with occasional nod towards centrism, a Christian lady says, there's a sense of heaviness wherever you go. This is exactly right, and this is a not insignificant part of what I'm interested in, describing that heaviness. In the swimming pool, a professional mediator of injury cases tells me that plaintiffs are invariably convinced that their life was perfect before the accident. Her job is to disabuse the plaintiff of this notion. Absurdly, I'm obsessed with trying to figure out what Donald Trump's original wound is. It's not apparent to me yet what it is. What degree and angle of self-loathing necessitate Trump's mania with being liked? Not just liked, but rather loved. Not even loved, adored, worshipped on a second-by-second -second basis. 
What sadness animates this need to be flattered and fluffed? Look at how tiny the photo is of Trump's mother behind Trump's White House desk. How dwarfed it is by the photo of his father and how it wasn't even there from January until April 2017. Surely someone noticed the omission and suggested the change. In his office on the 26th floor of Trump Tower, a large photo of his father is prominently displayed. There's no photo of Trump's mother. In the Nova episode, Extreme Animal Weapons, University of Montana evolutionary biologist Doug Emlin argues that animals, quote, weapons evolve generation by generation via violent duels. His father, Stephen, a neurobiologist who has an endowed chair at Cornell and who has a minor role in the episode, had earlier formulated a theory about animals and their weaponry, but without his son's emphasis on evolutionary adaptation. Does the show know it is about itself? Trump frequently uses the simile, like a dog. Do you notice that? He constantly says, like a dog. It's a fascinating tip. Choked like a dog, sweated like a dog, dumped like a dog, fired like a dog, etc. It feels to me like a clue to his psyche. Of what, though, exactly? Did he have a dog as a kid? Did he torture animals? On the first episode of the sixth season of The Apprentice, Trump sits in the limo, talking on the phone to Melania. We hear pre-recorded stock sounds of baby coos and giggles. Trump says, bye-bye, Baron. Take care of yourself. <laughs> Whenever, very briefly, Trump is feeling upbeat, he goes in for those various finger gestures from the podium, the accountant's circle, the magician sliding, missing two fingers, the mafia Don's shrug, the Schwarzkopf aim and point. It's a hand, it's a gun, it's a penis. Tom's omnipresent long red tie ends just below his belt. Could the blood-filled penis symbolism be any more obvious? At Davos, Trump sits on a white chair in exactly the same manner he sat on a white chair at his first press avail with Obama at the White House. 
His posture is for shit. His legs are splayed. His feet point in opposite directions. He's pointing, grimacing in that stereotypical 12-year-old boy way of his. And his hands are placed at the end of his tie, directly over his crotch and forming the exact shape of a uterus. My weird fascination with MSNBC's Brian Williams and his yearning to be smart. A college dropout, he worships every bullshit medal and award and prize. He expresses surprise that a Harvard grad and Rhodes Scholar, Roy Porter, could also be a domestic abuser. Jordan Peele cast Allison Williams, Brian's daughter, because of the whites-only girl's echo, but also the dull perfection of her father's face and its relationship to pathological lying. He was fired for pretending to be taking incoming in Iraq. Same reason Bradley Whitford, the very embodiment of enlightened adorableness on the West Wing, was cast as the father in Get Out. Does the HBO show Big Little Lies know it's constantly sucking its own dick at the same time that it's condemning forced fellatio? The Lord of the Flies-esque murder at the end of season one is an attempt to retire the issues in a fusillade of female bonding. But what the show is really about is the tyranny of beauty. Every male and female character is permitted to have sex on screen as frequently or infrequently as his or her ranking on the beauty scale merits. Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman are physically, quote, perfect, so we get to see the SM scenarios of their marriage play out over and over. Whereas Adam Scott, who looks feral, and Reese Witherspoon, with her sadly heart-shaped face, are condemned to a sexless marriage. The show pretends to be on the side of the avenging feminist angels and could not be more Trumpian. We're all listening. You would think I had written this passage for the project narrative, but I actually wrote it before I was invited here. We're all listening to post-rock albums and post-truth podcasts, visiting post-figurative painting exhibitions, watching post-drama theater, reading post-plot literature, and yet we're supposed to be surprised that we no longer have conviction-led politics. We're being told, quote, stories. The feigned shock is beyond risible. The dissection enacts the very phenomenon it's pretending to dissect. My students clamor for an explanation of the disorientation they feel. Chain migration, entitlements, pro-life, and other pitch-perfect radical right formulations 
Why are they never matched by the Democrats? The Republicans repeat the phrase relentlessly. The phrase is fiercely vivid and impossible to forget. And the Democrats invariably counter with something quasi-logical. For instance, family reunification benefits pro-choice. Their term carries no raw power. It has no primitive appeal, as if such a gesture were beneath them. Trump tries out outlandish ideas, for instance, a military parade. Then if when they get shot down, he always says he was just joking. Nobody in the history of American politics has been able to do exactly this. How does he do it? It's because it's a given on all sides of the discourse that the entire operation is a sham. Everyone knows it, and yet no one says this exactly because the, quote, right loves the anti-establishmentarian audacity of the WWE spectacle. The, quote, left fulminates apoplectically and completely counterproductively, utterly symbiotically, and the entire cycle continues minute by minute, the meter never not clicking over. A former Bernie Sanders volunteer shoots and wounds several Republican congressmen practicing for a softball game against their Democratic counterparts. There's much rhetoric spilled about how we're all in this together. We are not. Gore Vidal asked what he would say to the founders, said, nice try. The coffee shop owner down the street is fantastically antipathetic to all things Trump, but in the obsessiveness with which he places innumerable signs throughout the shop informing customers what they can and can't do, and when they can and can't do it, could not be more Trumpian. Can one say coherently that one is a truly tolerant person if one refuses to tolerate intolerance? A tricky problem in logic, but there may be much riding on our ability to resolve it. In a cartoon called Aspirational Trump Tower, Two schlubs, husband and wife tourists, take a double selfie outside Trump Tower. The cartoonist feels compelled to add, this will give you a better understanding of Trump's base than a thousand of those what do Trump supporters think essays. Astonishingly, the cartoonist doesn't get how Trumpian this self congratulation via put-down is. Some sort of bogus emergency expert shows up on NPR to claim that when we're watching disaster coverage, Texas and Florida, hurricanes, we're doing so out of compassion, concern for our fellow citizens. This is wrong. We watch to feel safe. 
wrapped in a cocoon of voyeurism and vicariousness and schadenfreude. We like to see bad things happen to other people. This is terrible, but it's true. The clown Avner the Eccentric can easily walk straight between two trees on a slack rope, but for his act, he wavers back and forth, mocks alarm, all but falls, and just makes it across. People dearly want him to fall. We will do anything to disrupt our lives. We worship chaos. It's impossible not to rubberneck. When I ask a policy advisor to Jeb Bush to tell me stories about what it was like to be part of a presidential campaign, she tells me half a dozen anecdotes, each of which is a sort of earnest ode to the integrity, thoughtfulness, and idealism of the candidate. I literally can't comprehend how someone can think about other people this way. It's the same thing that made the West Wing nearly impossible for me to watch. I think we are a fallen, doomed species. So those are some cheerful thoughts about Trump and culture and human nature for you. So that book came out in October of 2018. And then a book that, um, I don't know, if Kristen Raleigh, is she here? I don't see her. She's the editor of a wonderful imprint of through Ohio State University Press called Bad Creek Books with a, a sub-imprint called 21st Century, 21st Century Essays. And I have written a book. I'm going to sort of pivot into my next book, which is being published next week on, on Tuesday. I wonder... There's this convention of publishing books on Tuesday. I don't know why that is. Is there anyone have any? I've never understood that the books are always published on Tuesday for some odd reason. Anyway, they're publishing. I'm real. I wanted to send out a high sign to her because they um, first. I mean, they did a beautiful job with the book. It has this incredible cover. It's uh, my favorite cover of of any book I've ever. I've ever published, and um, you know, frankly, that it's a book with the title "The Trouble with Men: Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power." And um, I think of it as a fairly risky book. I mean, I know it's a fairly risky book, and uh, conventional, traditional commercial publishers were afraid to publish it. And I'm really proud to publish the book with um, 21st Century Essays. I'm going to read probably just the first uh, several pages. And the book is a, a mashup, as Jim implied. I, I'm, I don't know where that comes from me and why I'm so drawn toward layering upon layering of voices. But um, the book is a mashup. It's about sort of 60% of me and about 40% of, of other people's voices, everyone from theorists on sexuality, to contemporary pop psychologists, to ancient philosophers. And in the book, the press did this wonderful thing in which in very tiny citations, 
you can see at the edge of the margin who said every every line. And I'm not going to sort of slow down the conversation by endlessly sort of a footnoting who said what. It's probably implied who's talking, whether it's me or someone else's voice. But anyway, if you if you need to find out who said it, you'll need to purchase the book. So anyway, I'll, I'll just, just read for maybe 10 or 15 minutes the opening passages of the book. This book aims to be a short, intensive immersion into the perils, limits, and possibilities of human intimacy. How did I get this way? What is this way? Our marriage involving this way? Attempt to stop being this way. Implications of being this way. Or what is it like to be this way? How did I get this way? What is it like for you that I am this way? Can I live with being this way? Can I stop being this way? Or hemartia, childhood, marital strife, irreparable damage. Ah, but we are all like this. Or the nature of, the sources of, our marriage involving, my attempts to rid myself of, a partial defense of. Or human history of, psychic sources of, our marriage involving, attempt to eliminate and or suppress and or attempt to disentangle from and or affirm psychological, philosophical implications of or how one is, is wounded two, one tries to overcome these wounds three, these wounds become the very theater of oneself four, one despairs that one will ever overcome those wounds, and these wounds lead one to anger, violence. And five, finally, we connect to other people by realizing we are all wounded. This is our scar tissue and our glue, etc. Perhaps the real subject is my willingness, or at least desire, impulse, to write this book, to risk our marriage. Do I love you? Do you love me? What kind of marriage do we want? How real? Or do you like me? Do you care about me? Or are you in love with me? Do you like making love with me? Do you love making love with me? don't answer. The agon then, what is it then between us? What separates us? How did we get here? What went wrong? What do we do now? Is there any way past except through? History in one corner and love in the other. Fine. Ring the bell. Let the fight begin. Love, he thinks, will bring history to its knees. Romance holds my attention only if it promises a sizable element 
of risk. Aristotle's theory of dramatic structure, introduction, rising action, climax, falling action, denouement, is nothing more or less than a diagram of the sexual act from the male point of view. It doesn't mean the theory is true, and it doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means sex is everything. Some people don't like sex. Some people like sex but don't see it as an especially important part of their life. And some people see sex as a journey. It's never been a minor part of my life, even when we were hardly ever having sex. I've never written by hand or in bed before, but I'm writing all of this with a pen on a legal pad, lying down. Let's say I'm writing a love letter to you. I'm just trying to be as truthful as possible. I'm not thinking, how is it going to affect you? Ultimately, of course, I'm aware of trying to create an intimate connection between you and me, but in a way, it's the last thing on my mind. It's so perfect that you don't want me to write this book because you don't want to read it. Therefore, I have to write it. So, too, if you were fine with me writing it, I'd have no desire to write it. Knowing how boring this book would be if you were willing for it to be written. If, for instance, you were Catherine Millet, it's your unwillingness to sanction it that makes it necessary. You, my darling, are the perfect muse, a ceaseless spur. I truly love how little you like any of my books, including this one. Maybe you'll love this one. Maybe you'll hate it. The only reason it's being written, or at least one of the main reasons it's being written, the reason I started writing it, is to talk, finally, to you. Or, I still don't know you at all, hence this letter. It would be such a relief to be honest for once. I'm dying for everything to get out in the open, but it never does. Or, this letter has slept so long at the bottom of my gym bag that it seems less like a message than an artifact. Perhaps that's why I put it to sleep in the first place. Even while writing it, it seemed to belong to the ancient past, or more exactly, to another lost day in this lonesome city. I'll send it along, though, because I can't really remedy my old impressions. Beware what you say you say to me. It has a way of getting found out. A letter always arrives at its destination. Hanif Qureshi's novel Intimacy holds the fascination of a car wreck, the sickening promise of voyeurism. Can the author possibly realize how much he betrays of his life, his psyche? The content of the, quote, novel is so clearly and completely drawn from the author's experience 
that although Intimacy was published as fiction, it was received venomously as fact. The whole question of what it means to set another person before the camera, trying to extract something of his or her soul. When are we exploiting? When are we caressing? Are they maybe the same? Maybe it's impossible not to do both. Maybe that's the truth of human relationships. If there's one word about me in the book, I'll never speak to you again. Really? One word? Just one? My worst fear is to be held captive by niceness. What will I allow myself to say? What is there to confess? Have I done something wrong? Yes, no, circle one. Go ahead, write on my manuscript. You thought you could hide behind your laptop, poor baby. He had managed to take every struggle in his life and, and turn it into a form of sense, save for this last one, which being rooted in the senselessness of sexual desire, ended for him in shame. Life is unfair. Kill yourself or get over it. This book is an attempt to get over it. Thank you. That was author David Shields during a February 18th visit to the WEX. Thanks for listening to WEXcast. For more information about the center and its programming, go to wexarts.org.